Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast, and we want to welcome back a very special guest. Today, we welcome back Michael Shermer. As we all know, he's a science writer, historian of science, founder of the Skeptic Society, and editor-in-chief of its magazine, Skeptic, which is largely devoted to investigating pseudoscientific and supernatural claims. He's the author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things and the Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, the Moral Arc, and Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. He's the host of the largely popular podcast, The Michael Shermer Show, and his newest book coming out on October 25th is called Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational. Welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thanks. Here it is. I should probably have it. I should probably have it up here somewhere. I don't. I don't even know how I would do that. But, yeah. You could have it in the plant. Put it in the plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. In the plant. Yeah. How, oh, come yeah, on. Here we go. How's that? Actually, not bad. You see, not bad. Hey, what started out as a joke. Oh, 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 oh. there we go. <laughs> From a joke to an epic podcast moment. <laughs> That's right. All right. So to begin, I'm going to actually read a passage from Michael from your book and then we'll oh, yeah. get it rolling. Okay. okay. So Michael writes, quote unquote, have you ever wondered why we go to war or have you ever been or why we never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why is there poverty, division and crime? What if I told you there was a reason for it all? What if I told you that that was done on purpose? So this is a quote from QAnon. Then Michael writes, yes, as a matter of fact, I have wondered about such problems as war, poverty, divisiveness and crime as any thoughtful person might. There are entire fields composed of social scientists, historians, and policy analysts who study such problems and have constructed elaborate models with multi-factor analyses mm -hmm. and regression equations to explain why so many of these causal vectors lead to armed conflict, crime and violence, poverty and debt, and political divisiveness. Each of these problems has sizable has sizable communities of experts conducting thousands of studies published in hundreds of scholarly scholarly journals and books to try to answer such important fundamental questions which are vital for the functioning for functioning society to solve but what if as conspiracists often believe these conditions and many more are the result of a single factor that can be rooted out by the right person so i mean obviously when it comes to uh, factor analysis and regression models like these are all really complicated things that the vast majority of people probably myself included won't ever really understand or be able to sort of wrap our minds around mm -hmm. so what is it that you think you know this is now obviously going into your work and what is it that you think kind of drives conspiratorial thinking and why is it that for the most part rather than you know look at experts in different fields and try to sort of separate uh, let's say different factors and try to figure out what's the what's the sort of the quantifiable contribution of each how come we kind of tend to look to one person or one entity or one institution or one organization to say that's the person that's the culprit that did it yeah. Well, the passage you read, <clears throat> in fact, I was just thinking about that recently because I just passed the 50th anniversary of when I started college in 19, fall of 1972. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then so, I, so that got me going through some of my old notebooks. And then I found my notebooks from um, statistics and then regression analysis, analysis of variance. And I'm looking at these these pages and pages of equations and thinking who wrote all these things down i don't even remember this much less how to do it <laughs> right i mean it's pretty complicated you know if you have a kind of a rat's nest of interacting variables how do you know which is the one that is making the difference and which is not making a difference and it's mm -hmm. really hard to tell i was just thinking about this with um a lecture on uh, monday with my students i teach a critical thinking course called skepticism 101. So we we're talking about correlation and causation. And, and I just asked them, you know, is it worth it being here in college? 
That is to say, is, is a college degree worth it? Well, there are people that study this and Turns out you'll make about a million and a half dollars more over the course of your lifetime if you have a bachelor's degree versus not. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, there's other reasons to go to college and then just to make money. But just that calculation alone. But how do you know it's the the bachelor's degree that did it? How, how do you know that it's not you're smart and 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 that's what got you into college? But it's the smart, the intelligence that uh, it led you to earn more money, or maybe. It's your parents and your upbringing. And regardless of whether they sent you to college or not, they instilled in you a work ethic to make money or whatever. And healthier people make more money and people in better neighborhoods make more money <laughs> and so on. So, you know, it could be three or four or six, half a dozen, could be a dozen different variables that mm -hmm. go into the question of, you know, about why you would make more money in the course of a lifetime. So that's an example um, where most of us have a hard time grasping that, including me, and I have training in it. And so it's just easier to think, well, you know what, it's really just this one thing. That's it. You know, it's these, <clears throat> it's just, it's this cabal, it's this group, it's the, it's the Illuminati, it's, you know, the uh, alien lizard people that are running the world. <laughs> uh, you know, I've just, I just had an economist on my show, uh, um, Alan Blinder, he, he was uh, vice president of the Federal Reserve Board. <laughs> I mean, so he, he's one of these insider guys. Uh, so, all right, just walk me through what's going on. Why do we have inflation? Why? Oh, is he's in the deep state. Yeah, he's a deep stater. Yeah, exactly. I said, you're one of those guys that's behind closed doors pulling the threads and I don't, none of us know what's going on, you know? And, uh, you know, but his answer was, well, you know, it's complicated. Like, yeah, I know it's complicated, but come on. And so it's really easier in a way to think, um, you know, it's this one thing here that is easily understandable versus nobody actually understands why the economy operates the way it does. I mean, economists have different theories, but they don't agree with each other. You know, it's not it's not like physics or something where you get mostly agreement on basic stuff. Not so with economics. So and, and that's true with the political world, social world. So to the average person, just kind of looking around the landscape and thinking, why is all this happening? You know, war and poverty and crime or whatever, you know, and it's like, I don't know. And then you, you know, are, are floated some idea, you know, they want to destroy America. Who, who's they? Oh, mm -hmm. you know, the lib, the libtards or the Democrats <laughs> or, you know, Bernie mm -hmm. or Biden. And uh, it's just easier to think it's just that as opposed to nobody really understands, you know, no one's can control, no one's running the show. That's actually kind of scarier. You mean it's just kind of random? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, what is it in us that it sort of defaults to the negative when it comes to conspiracies? It's like nobody has a, a conspiracy of like, you know, you ever heard of that term pronoia? Like it's as opposed to paranoia. You think that, you know, the universe is conspiring to do something good for you. Yeah, right. Why aren't there any like good conspiracies? Why is it that we just are always so biased towards the negative? Actually, there is one that would be the secret, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is that the universe wants you to have a Mercedes or a Tesla and wants you to have a big house and, and so on. And, and, and all you have to do is ask the universe, right? Well, you know, I've been asking the universe for all sorts of things and it doesn't give it to me. So maybe it's me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but well, so I argue in the book that um, it's an evolved propensity to look for negative things rather than positive things, because it's the negative things that can take you out of the gene pool. So mm -hmm. we're more likely to, um, focus on and remember, pay attention, uh, things that are dangerous, uh, versus, you know, small positive things that happen. Of course we enjoy those, but, you know, just think of like your Twitter feed, 
or whatever your social media preferences is and you get a bunch of likes post something you like 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 yeah 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 what is this one negative who is this asshole i'm gonna (laughs) you know focus on this and i'm gonna obsess about this one guy that didn't like what i said you know that's pretty typical right i mean Mm. so in behavioral economics they say you know the loss aversion that losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good and to get somebody to make an investment the payoff has to be about twice what it would be if you lost something and felt bad about that and that's pretty normal. It's called a negativity bias. And mm-hmm. um, I have a long discussion of this in my chapter on constructive conspiracism. That is to say, um, enough conspiracy theories turn out to be real. That is, there are real conspiracies that it pays to err on the side of assuming more of them are true than probably are. Uh, and and the driver behind that is this evolved cognition of negativity bias. We notice negative things more than positive things. And and and. The, what's behind that is the really physics, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, shit happens. Bad things happen all the time. There's a thousand ways for things to go wrong mm. in any given day versus only a couple of ways for things to go right. So, you know, you better pay attention to those that could take you out of the gene pool. And those that weren't paying attention, they didn't leave offspring, <laughs> right? So we're we're the descendants of those who make more type one errors, that is uh, uh, false positives. Assume a pattern of threat is real when it's not, as opposed to missing it, you know, a type two error. That is, you fail to recognize a real threat and that can take you out of the gene pool. So anyway, it's an evolved cognition. I think that applies to many things, but in terms of conspiracies, it applies in the sense that we're a social primate species. We evolved in these small bands and tribes of, of, uh, of other primates and, and it's true that there are coalitions of people that do things behind mm-hmm. our backs that aren't always good, right? People gossip about other people. They plot in secret to do things. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it, it kind of pays to be constructively paranoid a little bit. <laughs> you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> they might be. Right. So, you know, just in case you should be cautious. Right. And I love the conceptual model that you use. So it's essentially for our listeners, it's two tiered. On the one hand, you explain what are some of the psychological and social components of pretty much being the foundation of conspiratorial thinking, and then the heuristics or cognitive distortions that essentially sustain them and maintain them. So besides, obviously, now we talked about kind of the evolutionary aspect. So uh, can you talk a little bit, I want to start with the foundation. So can we talk a little bit about the other two, and particularly proxy conspiracism? Mm. That's the one that really stood out to me, just because I can conceive of a world where you have a religious person and that person thinks of it as like evil versus good, God versus the devil. And then when you have something like a Facebook war and then you have people saying, well, Hillary is the devil and Donald Trump is actually some sort of incarnation of Jesus or Jesus is like follower or whatever it is. And then that kind of matches, right? What we're seeing in the world. And you're like, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this moment, judgment day or whatever it is. And here it is being played in front of us. So let's focus a little bit about proxy conspiracism. I think that one is the big one, especially like in the way it kind of applies to people. Yeah, so, so, well, so this is, uh, you know, the first leg of my three-legged stool theory of conspiracism, that is proxy conspiracism, tribal conspiracism, and the one I just mentioned, constructive conspiracism. So the proxy conspiracism, I I thought of this um, while watching the um, insurrection on January 6th, and before that, the whole QAnon, Pizzagate business, and the idea that the Democrats, particularly Hillary Clinton, is running a secret satanic pedophile cult out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. How could anybody it, that with two neurons <laughs> or more you know, possibly believe this idiotic idea? I mean, it's just insane. It's crazy. It's dumber than the 9-11 truth theory. 
Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, allegedly, purportedly, millions of of people, mostly Republicans, do believe it. At least they say they believe it. But so here, what do you mean by believe? Do they really believe it? I mean, one guy did, Edgar Welch. He went there with his gun to break up the pedophile ring, which is what you would do if there really were a crime. You, you believe there really were a was a crime com- being committed, and the police weren't doing anything about it. And you'd go there, and it's like I'm going to take the law into my own hands. You know, people do this. And that guy did. But, you know, most people don't do that. So I don't think they really believe it specifically. I think it's more of a proxy belief. That is, it's a stand in for something else. The kind of thing those Democrats would do. I don't know if Hillary's actually leading a pedophile ring out of a pizzeria, but she, you know, she's it's the kind of thing those Democrats, those libtards, they would do something really bad like that. And she cheats and lies. And yeah, yeah. you know, So it's more of a stand in. Uh, for some deeper, um, you know, proxy, some, something else is going on there that you have to kind of drill down to get at. What is it that bothers people? In the case of conspiracism, it's, it often revolves around power. You know, who has power, who doesn't? And most of us, you know, back to the constructive conspiracism, are a little suspicious when there's not transparency of people that are behind closed doors doing things. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what they're doing. And they seem to have more power than I do. And, and that doesn't seem right. So there's something going on here. I don't know what it is. I'm very suspicious. And, and, and in reality, there's a good reason for that. Cause often people behind closed doors without transparency, without checks and balances, you know, this is why we have a regulatory state. This is why we have laws about insider trading because without the laws, people will inside trade right and left. Of course, you know, just like athletes will, they'll do what they can get away with because that's the nature of the game is to win. And uh, so you need that. And, and so of course we're, you know, we're kind of a uh, suspicious of the, that sort of thing. <clears throat> yeah. And wh- why I love that so much is because it's essentially, it's not the same thing, but it's very close to a cognitive behavioral model that like I would use as a therapist because essentially we focus on core beliefs and then how information or incoming information is interpreted in the context of those core beliefs. So whether you have beliefs about yourself, beliefs about other people or another person, specifically groups, whatever the world in general. So people find it kind of hard to think that, oh, it's the core beliefs that's affecting my interpretation of the data where it's like for them, the way they look at the data, again, let's say if I'm religious and let's say I'm a Christian, I would look at the data and I would say, well, of course this is happening. Of course, you know, we're expecting the devil to come and we're expecting the devil's sort of people to be Democrats in some way because there's these hipsters or hippies or whatever and they have these really weird beliefs and they're really sexually free and then they want to get our children involved and yada yada, right? And so it's so hard for people to see that it's actually your core belief that's helping you interpret the data as opposed to the data being in some sense objective in the way that people want to think about it. Yeah, there's even an example in the book, right? Uh, Essentially oh, uh, if, for example, somebody says, uh, oh, I don't like Obamacare, you know, and then you might actually question them on it. What don't <laughs> you like about it? What is Obamacare? And then, you know, they just tend to fall apart. They can't even tell you what it is. <laughs> just that my side, my tribe, or whatever it might be, just happens to think that way. So I'm going to fall in line and espouse that idea it's it's right and now i love that because now we're going into the biases right so now we're going into my side biases and other others all right so michael now can we get into the actual in terms of the framework we started out at the foundation now let's get to the second tier now how are the beliefs actually maintained right well so those are good examples actually because excuse me if you take something like um, climate change anthropogenic global warming you know that got bundled with the democrats back with al gore's film and inconvenient truth and so to conservatives, when they hear climate change or global warming, you know, they auto their brain auto corrects to 
socialism, you know, right. uh, communism, you know, left wing, you know, destruction of American capitalism and free market enterprise. And, and it's like, wait a minute, we were just talking about CO2 gases and the melting of glaciers. How did you get into socialism and, and free market capitalism? What does that got to do with it? You know, and the answer is nothing except in their minds, you, you, they just take that, that kind of hypothetical journey down the path. Okay, if they do this, if this turns out to be true, then they're going to pass legislation. They're going to restrict business. And before you know it, you know, we're Soviet Russia, whatever, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, yeah, or, you know, like since you brought up Christianity, you know, with, with creationists, um, uh, uh, say conservative Christians, if, you know, they hear Darwin or ev theory of evolution, again, their brain just autocorrects to, you mean atheism, immorality, relativism, anything goes, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, I don't like that at all. And it's like, wait a minute, we were just talking about biology and the explanation of the origin of species. How did you get into sex, drugs, and rock and roll? What does that got to do? Right. So to, to them, they just do this kind of counterfactual. Well, if everybody believes this, then the following things are going to happen. And before you know it, America goes to hell in a moral handbasket. And, you know, so that, so to, to talk to somebody like that, you need to remove that off the the, the table. You know, you can keep your belief in Christianity, Jesus died for your sins, whatever, it has nothing to do with evolution. You can accept evolution and keep your religion. Now, you know, somebody like me, no, that doesn't work for me, but it can work for other people. And same thing with, with uh, climate skeptics, you know, no, you can, we can, you can still have free market capitalism and, and let people make a ton of money on green technology, right? So, mm. you know, there's it's just kind of a way of a workaround that problem. Right. Yeah. And I remember, so as I, as I was reading the book, essentially, I mean, this is not something I'm necessarily proud of. I mean, people who listen to the show consistently already know this about me. So I was a longtime conspiracy theorist slash libertarian, as most people on that side of the spectrum were. So for me, for I think about, oh my God, like I think it was 10 plus years or something like that. I was really deeply into it. You and were? I remember Oh, yeah, wow. man. Oh my God, man. It was, so, it was so bad. I literally, I was listening to Alex Jones almost every day. Almost. I don't even know if you knew that about me. Yeah. No, I was listening no, to I so. Yeah. I listened to all of that stuff. So David Icke, Alex Jones, uh, who, mm. there was another famous one. Oh my God. I used to listen to the hour of the time. Do you remember Bill Cooper? The hour of the time? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember he wrote Be uh, Behold the Pale Horse. Oh, right. Yeah, right. I was actually into his stuff too, man. Yeah, so for like the longest time, I really loved these people. And I remember thinking like, there's just no possible way that this version of reality just can't be true. Again, first of all, it was all pretty logical or at least seemingly so. At least it fit a really neat narrative. Seemed rational. Seemed rational, right, right. So it fit a really neat narrative. And I remember thinking like, as I went through the rabbit hole and started like learning about how they lie and sort of mis they sort of misuse data and obviously jump to conclusions. And then what's the other big one? Um, They fill in the holes with split not skepticism, but with, um, what would you call it? With uh, suppositions, right? We're pretty much like just mm. hearsay or whatnot. And I remember thinking like, yo, there's no way that this world can't be true. But yeah, but it's so, it sounds so great, man. It's it's such a great narrative. And I remember it all started for me with Zadgeist. That movie, I, I'm oh, sure God. for anybody who's ever seen it, yeah, really blew yes. me away. You remember that? So yeah, Bill oh, Cooper yeah. and Zadgeist. I like those, that movie too. Yeah, those but... are the two big things, right? And they're, and they're all bullshit, right? Come to find out. But not when you're watching them. They have this like, they have this great way of 
of just like um, tailoring to your emotions, not only to your fears, but obviously kind of to your desires. It helps you explain why you aren't where you want to be in life. That's great. Where it says, well, you know, if you're not one of the mega wealthy elite, there's no way for you to move up in the world. I remember actually being terrified of chemtrails thinking, you know what? I might as well just give up on life. They're trailing us every <laughs> single day. I'm going to have brain damage at some point. Anyway, what's the point of any of it? Yeah, that's how deeply into it I was. And so, Michael, do you you find that it's like that for the people you encounter too? Oh, yeah, right. There's a kind of certain internal logic to it. When you're in the bubble, you know, they they construct a worldview that makes sense. You know, one thing follows from the other. If this is true and this is true, then that has to be true and so on. That's like, well, that's what it was for me when I was a Christian. I went to Pepperdine University and I was Christian for about seven years, born again, evangelical Christian. And, you know, it made sense to me um the way everything was presented and there wasn't a lot of skepticism um so when i went to a secular university for graduate school it's not that nobody was religious this is the late 70s <clears throat> um it but but it wasn't relevant no one cared no one talked about religion science and religion was not a thing there was no war between science and religion it just didn't matter and there then it, it you know there was no coherency to it and I could see my way around it, like taking courses in comparative mythology. I went through my Joseph Campbell stage, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and all that stuff and and the comparative world religions and anthropology of religion. And I was clear that, you know, every one of them thinks they're the right one. Everyone lives in this kind of internally coherent worldview that makes sense until you step out of it. So one of the virtues of science and skepticism is that you have to step out of your bubble because if you don't, somebody else will and debunk your theory in print, right? That's kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, you know, and again, that's, it's one test of conspiracy theories. Are they true or not? It's a signal detection problem. Some of them are true, some of them are not. How do you know? You know, one way is to look for counterfactual evidence. What would refute your argument, whatever the conspiracy theory is? What evidence would go against it? It's easy to find evidence for it. You know, we're all good at that. Confirmation bias, my side bias, and all that stuff. And uh, but what would counter it? You know, what what would refute it? And most people have a hard time thinking of that. Like, I, hmm, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Or just simply, what would it take to change your mind? You know, and that's a hard question for people to answer. And the reason appears to be that we don't naturally try to falsify our hypotheses about the world. Mm-hmm. We tend to just look for confirming evidence. It appears to be the natural way that we think. And, uh, you know, give you give um, subjects, you know, cognitive tasks to perform, problems to solve. And basically, they look for ways to confirm uh, what they think the answer is, not disconfirm it. Right. So this is the problem with conspiracies that uh, they tend to be general enough conspiracy theories. They tend to be general enough and um, kind of loosely based on patterns that people think they see. It's easy to find evidence to fit it. Oh, the Jews are running the media or, you know, 9-11 was an inside job because look what Bush did or, you know, whatever it is. Obama is not born in the United States and there's this weird anomaly here and this weird anomaly there, JFK, you know, the QAnon and so on. You know, like the QAnon drops, the Q drops, right? I mean, they're 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 irrefutable. They're non-falsifiable. There's these just kind of generic things. Oh, look, something big is going to happen in the next six months. Oof. Okay, you know, no doubt, but what does that even mean, right? And uh, that's the problem. Uh, How do we talk to somebody like, let's say, one of our friends or our family, or not even, or just a random person who's who's really bought into a conspiracy? How do we 
I don't know when somebody is so strongly identified with a position, right? Or let's say just that sunken cost bias, like they've they've invested way too much into that theory for them to be able to actually accept, you know, counterfactual uh, information. What's a way to sort of ease into that and maybe create some kind of rapport with that person in order so that they might kind not necessarily go to your side, just be more open. Can I, yeah, can I, can yeah. I add on to that first? Please, so, please. so he, I want to kind of give an example, right? So there was a conspiracy theorist from, I think it was uh 50s, 60s, 70s. I think he passed away probably the early 2000s. He was into like the Jewish banker conspiracy. His name was Eustace Mullins. He wrote a bunch of books. One of them was called the curse of Canaan. So here's why I want to add this onto your question, right? So imagine this. So you have somebody like a Eustace Mullins follower. And by the way, this book is, is just so wild, the depth of it. And here's what I mean by that. So Eustace Mullins explained history, political, so socioeconomical, uh, geopolitical, oh, military history in the context of literally the Bible. So what he does in this book is he traces everything. This is why it's called the curse of Canaan. He traces everything back to this biblical story of Cain and Abel. And he says, everybody are either descendants of Cain or yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or they're descendants of Abel. So what happens is like, is the world kind of splits apart, right? He's like, you're one of these two folks, right? You're either sort of the good guys or you're the bad guys. And they could all be traced to that. And he goes into Egy ancient Egyptian history and he says, essentially, the Egyptian pharaohs were these descendants of Cain and these murderers who tried to enslave, like, you know, the, the good Christians or whatever, even though there were no Christians back then. But like the what would be the followers of Jesus at some point? Right. I don't know how I don't remember how he distinguished it. So essentially, my point is, right. How would you how to add on to Alan's question? So how do you challenge somebody who essentially says, well, here's the thing. History is very deep. And these people have a way of explaining it in the narrative that actually fits everything. It fits mm -hmm. all problems that we've ever experienced. And it fits it in this narrative that even traces back to the Bible, right? To times that we can't even really imagine. How do you counter that? Yeah, that's hard because a theory that explains everything really explains nothing because yeah. there, there's going to be anomalies and errors and whatever in there that just can't possibly be explained by a theory of everything. So, <clears throat> right. in zeitgeist, zeitgeist is like that. You know, everything is connected. Everything that's ever happened. You know, it's like, that's not possible. That's not how history works. Anyway, but I remember since you were influenced by that, I remember watching that going, God, this is just crazy. You yeah. know, but there was enough things that kind of made sense. You're like, okay, maybe, you know, like if half of this is true, 10% of it's true, you know, there's something going on here. Well, how about like 1% of it is true, right? And the rest is just bullshit. <clears throat> so well first of all you can't tell somebody what i just said you can't say what you believe is bullshit right because <laughs> then the the wall goes up cognitive dissonance kicks in and they stop listening and you know they they, they go into uh fight mode you know like well how can this guy is trying to you know ref, refute me trying to defeat me my ideas so i have to put up my defensive walls so instead you do an end run around that. You just ask questions, you know, remember that show Columbo where, um, you know, the, the detective would always just keep asking, just, I have just one more question, just, just one more question, you know? And so like, well, that's interesting. Um, where did you hear that? Or where did you get that idea? Whose idea is that? And, uh, you know, who is this person? What are their credentials? I mean, what, how, how would they know how, you know, and, um, you know, like, does it, what they're saying, does it make sense for how you think the world works? And, you know, what, what's the evidence for that? Um, is it good evidence? Is it not so good evidence? You know, is it hearsay evidence? Would it, would it fly in a court of law? You know, if there was, if you were in a, a room where there was somebody uh, like a defense attorney that was going to counter you with their evidence, you know, could you, would it, would, would it stand up and, and so on. So you just kind of ask questions like that and, 
you might throw in, you know, yeah, I find that really interesting or wow, I never really thought of it that way. You know, look at them in the eyes, you know, nod like you're paying attention because mm -hmm. you should. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a conversation with somebody, you should be respectful, leave emotions out of it. You know, don't equate them with Hitler and the Nazis because, you know, then it's over. Right. You know, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, ad Hitlerum. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, once you go to that path, the conversation's over. And, um, you know, and then also try to steel man their argument rather than straw man it, right? You just say, let me see if I understand what you're saying. Are you saying you think the Bush administration either knew about 9-11 ahead of time and let it happen, or they were actually involved and they, they made it happen? You know, which, which of those do you believe? And then they'll tell you and you, well, that's, God, that's so interesting. If that were true, oh my gosh, that would be, you know, that'd be earth shaking. But, you know, how is it that, I don't know if, how do you bring down a building with explosive devices, you know, building like the world trade center? I mean, did, wasn't that attacked in the early nineties and, you know, it was like two of the most secure buildings in the world with police and guards everywhere. I mean, how would you get in there to break through the drywalls, to put the bombs on the structural beams to blow them up? How, how would that happen? And then you see what they say, right? You just ask questions like that. You know, the buildings, if you watch the videos, it looks like the buildings fall, they begin their collapse right at the level where the planes hit at an angle, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. How is it that the people that planted the explosive devices knew ahead of time, which floors the planes were going to hit exactly at an angle? How, how is that possible? I just, I mean, explain this to me. I just don't get it. And, but asking in a kind of a, you know, an inquisitive way, not, not, not like a threatening way. Mm. And, and then again, see if you can repeat what they, whatever they say, okay, let me get this straight. You think, that Bush, one of the most incompetent presidents we've ever had, mm -hmm. somehow managed to pull off this most complicated conspiracy ever, you know, in the history of the country. I mean, how was that possible? And then just see what they say and just re keep repeating it back. Hmm. Yeah. And that really reminds me of what happened with my college mentor, uh, Dr. Tim Struputoro, John Jay. That's actually exactly what he did to me. So I met him in my ethics and law class. And then, uh, so he and I used to butt heads over about almost everything. So he was a liberal, I would say pretty progressive, if not socialist. Uh, and he and I used to butt heads on everything. And essentially he was like, look, man, he's like, I really think that you have a great capability of thinking. And there's something I see in you. Or he said something along these lines. He's like, there was something, there's something about you that makes me think it's worthy of having a dialogue, that you're worthy of having a dialogue with. And so, you know, essentially I was like, oh, Oh, great this is like my time to defeat this old guy like who is he you know and here i am I'm like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna defeat this brilliant academic professor and so what took years essentially entailed him sending me books sending me articles and he would actually take my ideas at least somewhat seriously and he would say something to me along the lines of like look he's like you can send me whatever you want to send me and i promise i will if i have the time i will look into all of it but he's like you have to be willing to actually listen to my feedback so he's like if you want me to listen to it i will listen to it but please be open to what i have to say i'm like yeah sure what is he gonna say he's got nothing right remember my <laughs> conspiratorial mind says like you can't debunk any of this stuff so as i'm sending him stuff little by little he's giving me critical feedback and then he's also telling me he said look you know can i send you some other literature so at the very least how about this right he says at the very least you won't have a caricature of the other side and you'll at least know what it is you're attacking and i'm like oh this is great yeah perfect i'm like send me the literature so he sends me one book after the other he sent me a book called the self-made myth he sent me uh another book about uh it's called american amnesia it's 
essentially how uh, the system and how the kind of system in the country is not necessarily run by corporations per se, but essentially how there's kind of undue influence by corporations. And it's not really government that's the problem. And the idea is that government is, especially in terms of big government, small government would actually be the problem because big government has made a lot of things happen, research development, uh, in terms of health issues, whatnot, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm reading these books, eventually I kind of come to him and I say like, damn, man, I say, like, I don't know how to say this, but you were like, write a lot about a lot of this stuff. And he's like, right. And he's like, think about it. He's like, why would these people who are experts, what, why would they lie? What did they have to gain from it? He's like, what money power? He's like, a lot of these academics, they don't even make that much money. How are they in on this? He said, what do you think? Like these, these people, these professors, he's like, how much money do you think I make? He's like, what, what, what peddling the, the sort of mainstream, you know, a bullshit view or whatever. He's like, what do you think I have to gain from it? And so as I'm reading the material more and more, I finally got the sense that this guy was trying to help me. Mm -hmm. So initially, as he started out as my adversary, and again, somebody who I really, and I, there was no way for me to defeat him. I mean, his evidence was spot on. Mine was complete garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just no way. So essentially the, the thinking became, okay, so here's this person who's in a sense trying to save me. So he sees something good in me. He sees that I have a lot of potential. And also he's not insulting me. He's not making me look foolish to other people. And he's trying to tell me that like, look, man, what you're doing is harming yourself. You're really ruining your life with this stuff. And I'm just trying to show you how at the very least, just look at the other side, right? He's like, at the very least, just see what other people have to offer and what other people have to say, which I never did as a conspiracy theorist. And by the way, I would say that is the major criticism of myself and other conspiracy theorists is even though we say we're truthers or we're in search of the evidence or whatever, I never looked at the other side ever, ever. Or if I did, it was some <laughs> bastardization. Yeah. It was some like caricature told by like some other conspiracy theorists who was like, oh, can you believe these nuts actually believe this? It's like, oh yeah, 9-11, right? Of course, you know, oh, what's it called? 16 hijackers or whatever it was of course how the hell can they pull it off and in my mind i'm like yeah that's so stupid <laughs> that's really funny yeah <clears throat> i had an experience like that in college i when I, I when i started college i was a born again evangelical as i mentioned and and uh, so you know part of being an evangelical is you're supposed to evangelize right you're supposed to tell other people about jesus to save their soul so i was doing that and um, the best, one of the best professors I had in my first two years of college, Richard Hardison, who was a longtime friend after that, uh, he was pretty secular atheist and, and really wickedly smart. You know, so I brought him material like I just found my notes going through my archives recently. I gave him a copy of Hal Lindsey's Their Late Great Planet Earth. And me and my Christian friends, we used to go, go through that book and then we'd read the newspaper like, oh, my God, can you believe this? The, you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini and, and Kissinger is, you know, and, the, and, the, and the big bear, the Russians and the Israel. And it, it's all coming true, just as it was predicted in the book of Daniel. Look, <laughs> it, you, know, the, you know, the eagle will face off with the bear in the Great Plains. You know, it's like, oh, the eagle, that's got to be the United States and the bear, that's got to be the Russians. You know, it's all coming true. And anyway, so I gave him the copy of this book. You know, and I said, this is it for sure. <laughs> like with you and your professor, he uh, he is going to come around. <laughs> this guy, he's smart. He'll see. And he sent me back <laughs> like this three page, you know, like 48 points of problems <laughs> he found with the book. And I'm reading through this going, why didn't I see that? Oh, my God, this is obviously a bunch of bullshit. I mean, I wasn't it didn't happen quite that fast, but, you know, kind of sunk in my mind like, OK, there's something wrong with the way I'm thinking about these things, because I didn't see any of these points. Right. So it took a, a while to kind of come around to that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's all you could do. Really, you have to be non-confrontational, you know, respectful, friendly, you know, I'm just here. Think about this, just give it some thought. 
I mean, we know from research, people rarely change their mind on the spot. Like, you know, here's some counterfacts. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that in that case, I'm, um, I'm not a religious anymore. I'm changing parties. I'm going to be a Republican now from a Democrat, whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. this, that almost never happens. Usually it's quietly behind the scenes later down the line. You never even know, you know, the person just quits talking about it or they change their mind and, and, and they don't tell anybody. And, and so that's all I think we can hope to do. Um, you know, enough such that if somebody in the privacy of their lives says, you know, okay, I think I'm not going to support QAnon, Trump, the rigged election, conspiracy theory and all that stuff. I don't want to admit I was an idiot and wrong, except for the people that went to the Capitol on January 6th. <laughs> they're, they're in prison now saying, I really fucked up. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But most people, I think, you know, that believed it, at least they say they did. The election was stolen and that was a good thing to go down there and do something about it. Um I think they're just quiet about it now. I think they're just quietly going about their business and not talking about it anymore. And I think that's for the most part, the most we can hope for. And uh, just try to plant that seed of doubt here. Just think about these few things right here and then just think about it. That's probably all we can do. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Honestly, if, if you're truly interested in seeking the truth, right. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it interest you to know your own, uh, biases, uh, you know, uh, that you may tend to go with group think and, and, and these sorts of things that we tend to do that, and that we identify with what we believe. Right. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you would think a conspiracy, somebody who's into conspiracies would be really into knowing what, what's the truest way to look at something, but, uh, appears not. Uh, but one thing that's uh, very interesting to me is that a lot of conspiracies are ridiculous, right? Like flat earth and, you know, space is fake, whatever. Yeah. How about the birds? Uh, How about the, 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 the birds are not real. Yeah. The birds are right. Well, that one I don't know about. Oh, well, this, <laughs> this was, this was just a hoax that I think, a guy, you know, when you, yeah, a guy was just having fun with this. Go oh, ahead, okay. Tell him about it. No, no. I, I actually thought that when you said, I don't know about it, yeah. I thought you actually thought the birds are robots. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 That's funny. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but the thing is like, yeah, a lot of these are, are ridiculous. Right. But there are actually some conspiracies that were proven, you know, to be, to be real, right? Like, uh, uh, MK ultra Gulf mm -hmm. of Tonkin uh correct me if i'm wrong uh project mockingbird i believe yeah. perhaps and i mean what's interesting is that i mean the fact that there have been actual conspiracies right it it does uh make one wonder you know like is there anything that maybe you know is going around as a rumor as a conspiracy now that you know has enough dissent sewed into it that that might actually be something that's real that we just don't know is real right now i understand that's very vague and and general and this is probably a trap that i might be yeah, you're, you're essentially asking like how do we know that any of the conspiracy theories that are proliferated today how do we know that they're not real how do we not know 20 years from now we're gonna be like ah oh, how do we fall for that yeah essentially yeah. yes yeah. uh not quite but yeah essentially that okay. question yeah. yeah well so there's another avenue into talking to your conspiracy theory friend without offending them is to acknowledge right up front there are conspiracy theories that turn out to be true a lot of them and you can just rattle off a few like you just mentioned mk ultra you know mm -hmm. the cia was dosing citizens u.s citizens protected by the constitution without their knowledge or consent with lsd and other mind-altering drugs as mm -hmm. part of the cold war 
um, you know, kind of like there was a missile gap with the Russians. Well, there was a, you know, a mind control gap, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm -hmm. And we, we have to close that gap uh, and have our own experiments. And I mean, it's much more extensive than that. You know, the whole Project Paperclip in which we were absconding with Nazi scientists before the Russians absconded with their Nazi scientists. And it was mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of an arms race. This is how we ended up with Werner von Braun, the most famous of the paperclip scientists. It was about 600 total. But he was the most famous one that ended up, you know, kind of orchestrating the whole Apollo mission to the moon. That mm -hmm. was Werner von Braun, which, you know, he cut his teeth on rockets with the V2 uh, vengeance rockets that he launched against uh, England uh, from this base called Penamunde that was basically run by slave a slave labor camp of Jews, you know, th tens of thousands of, of who died. So, you know, we have this bizarre situation in the 19, late 40s, early 50s, of the United States and the other allies putting on trial for war crimes, people that did the same kind of things, these Operation Paperclip scientists that we brought to America, gave them jobs, put them up in nice homes. And, you know, they lived out their lives and, you know, as, as free American citizens. And in, in here, they what they did was not so different from the people we executed after the Nuremberg trials. And then there mm -hmm. the, the doctor trials and there were a few others. And uh, it, it's like, wait, we did this? Yeah, we did. I mean, a lot of this was uh, it just came to light in the last decade, maybe 20 years or so. <clears throat> and uh, CIA involved in assassination plots against foreign leaders um, like Castro, most famously, but not just Castro. You know, we we were involved in the assassination of quite a few South American dictators in, in the in the uh, kind of belief that a fascist dictator is probably better than a communist dictator in terms of their support of American uh, industrial interests in their country. They're mm -hmm. less likely to nationalize the country, the company, if we put money into it. And uh, so we'll we'll prop up this guy rather than the other guy. I mean, this is how Saddam Hussein you know became our enemy. Then before that, he was our friend, and we gave him money mm -hmm. and and weapons and whatnot. It was just insane. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know the stuff from WikiLeaks and Ed Snowden. You know, wait, our, all the way up to you know this century. You know, our own government spying on our citizens, not just metadata, right? They're actually you know monitoring email and phone calls and and that of foreign leaders like Angela Merkel. Chancellor mm -hmm. of Germany. What? We were doing this you know, during Mr. Trans President Transparency, Obama's administration. So, you know, mm -hmm. I could go on and on like I do in the book. The point is, is that, you know, once you acknowledge that to a conspiracy theorist, you know, they go, OK, yeah, yeah, that's right. This guy, he recognizes the problem that I see. Then you can pull back and go, OK, but not all conspiracy theories are true. Some of them are not true. And then the question is, back to my signal detection problem, which ones are real? You know, which mm. signals that you're detecting um, are signs of a real conspiracy that happened or is happening or not. It's a false alarm. And uh, it's and there is no answer. It's just it depends on the particular claim. Right. You know, JFK, you know, I have old chapter you know, JFK blown away. You know, I think he was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. Full stop. And I, you know, I think I built a pretty solid case for that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. I just rattled off a bunch of TIA assassinations. I uh, mentioned those. And of course, Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy. And, you know, the, the government figured out who did it pretty quickly and put him on trial, executed him and so on. So it does happen. Some non-trivial uh, percentage of world leaders, uh, well, Western European monarchs 
and mm-hmm. other um, kings and whatnot were assassinated over the course of like 500 years. Somebody did a count on this that I cite in the book um, that it was something like 30% of all monarchs were assassinated. I mean, they, they, they lost power in a coup, right? So it's not completely crazy to think, you know, this is a coup or this is an assassination attempt or there's some plot, there's some cabal behind overturning, you know, our country. You know, th- th- this does happen. It has happened a lot in history. Right. So, um, you know, that's why I also devote a chapter to uh, conspiracy detection. How do you know? What are the signs that it might be real or that it's probably not real? Things like how many people would have to be involved? You know, the more people that have to be involved, the less likely the theory is to be true. Simply because people are incompetent, uh, they chicken out, they can't keep their mouth shut. You know, like mm-hmm. just think about 9-11 inside job, right? How many people would it take? Uh, to bring down the World Trade Center buildings with explosive devices. Well, you can look at and you can talk to people that do this for a living, demolition experts. There's companies that do this. And, you know, they have dozens, hundreds of people, to, you know, working there for weeks, preparing a building to demolish it. You know, this is something they do all the time. And uh, how would they get into those buildings, the World Trade Center buildings, to do all this? And are you telling me not one of these, let's just say a couple hundred people that worked on this project, not one wants to go on 60 minutes and go, Oh boy, have I got a story for you or write a best-selling book. You know, I was there, I was on the ground floor and, Mm. or I, you know, I know somebody, my spouse, this guy I was married to, he was in fault. He told me all about it. I got the receipts. I got the pictures. You know, this is what people do. (laughs) And, and not one has has come forward about 9-11 as an inside job, not one. So that tells Mm -hmm. us, okay, it's probably not true. You know, or how many elements have to come together at just the right time and right place? Because the way most conspiracy work is is very haphazard, uh, very much subject to chance and contingency. Accidents happen. Things don't work out just right. You know, I told you to be there at 637 and you were late by five <laughs> minutes and that threw off the, what I was going to do. And then this guy was going to do and blah, the whole thing unravels because it you know, didn't come together quite right. And, you know, again, just turned to Watergate, which was a conspiracy. Uh, but here, kind of a conspiracy of dunces. Here you have these G-men, these FBI guys like G. Gordon Liddy, and they couldn't even break into a hotel room without getting caught. I mean, come on. You know, they have the resources of the, the most powerful, uh, you know, person on the on the planet, Nixon, and whatever, you know, he provided money and whatever you know was needed, and they still screwed it up, right? That's how it usually goes. So the more of that that's in the conspiracy theory, the less likely it is to be true. And and again, small scale stuff is pretty normal. You know, like mm-hmm. I think this corporation is conspiring to cheat the regulatory state to gain an unfair uh, profit over other companies in the industry. Yeah, no shit. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time, right? <laughs> they get busted for it, like Volkswagen is the example I use. You know, mm-hmm. for, for years and years, they cheated the uh, emission standards by modifying their catalytic converters or whatever they did. And this came to light, right? That, But, but that is not surprising. Right. This is how the world works. We know this happens inside. This guy was caught for insider trading. Oh, that's a shocker. (laughs) Right. That's a but that's a kind of that's a real conspiracy. Right. Just a couple people involved. You don't have to have that many people in the know. You can pull it off. Um, By contrast, it's harder to pull off a a giant conspiracy, you know, world domination. We're going to take over (laughs) the world. We're going to run the economy. Nobody knows how to run an economy. Not even economists who do this for a living know how to do it. And so what are the chances?
chances to, you know, 12 guys in London, the Illuminati, they're, you know, pulling the strings, the cigarette smoking man on X-Files. Come on. That's just not how the world works. Yeah, I love your application of Bayesian reasoning. So essentially in the book, you say you we have to think about essentially these priors and what is it that we know about conspiracies? Like what type of conspiracy theories in this particular case would be true? Large scale ones, we've never found one, or at least, you know, let's say mega large scale ones, we've never found one. So for the most part, yeah, there's a plot of maybe a couple, of, even a dozen, maybe a couple of people trying to conspire against someone. So I think what you're essentially saying is that based on our prior knowledge, if we're looking at incoming evidence, we could discount some of them off, like, you know, kind of, I guess, out of hand and say something along the lines of, okay, this is probably not worth our attention. You know, time is limited. So this is not worth our attention. This sounds like it's absurd. But then when we're talking about a more minor scale conspiracy, like let's say, uh, let's say even several people trying to assassinate a political figure. Okay. We should probably look into this because this sounds like something that can happen. Is it related to the CIA, the FBI, the KGB, uh, Mossad, F you know, on and on it goes, uh, probably not just because we've never seen like that, anything like that in the history. And then of course the conspiracy theorists would say, well, nothing that we know about, but then now obviously see the burden of proof goes on you because I don't have the time to explore all of that. So I love that. I love the way that you conceptualize essentially what we should and shouldn't give attention to in this very sort of middle of the line way where we're not saying that we're discounting everything, but we're also not saying that we're considering. It's like that famous quote, you know, don't keep your brain so open that you don't keep your mind so open that your brain falls out. So essentially right. we're saying we'll consider some things and yes, we'll, we'll meet you halfway because there's some just truths or some truth to what you're saying, but we're not going to accept everything. We're not even going to take seriously everything that you're saying. And then so to kind of piggyback off of even what I'm saying now, uh, I love your idea with uh, going back to the George Bush example, where essentially, if you have these three options, on the one hand, he's either doing it on purpose, uh, kind of, let's say, on the other hand, it's, oh, he let it happen. I love that there's this third option that says, well, he's just an opportunist. So if we're thinking about, you know, I don't know if you would call this a conspiracy theory per se, it's like he's waiting around waiting for it to happen. But there's some truth to that. Like, yes, was George Bush waiting for that kind of opportunity to invade Iraq? Yeah. And I mean, we knew that he, uh, Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. tried to murder his father. So we were all kind of waiting for that. So mm -hmm. in some sense, yes, this this third option that I really love that essentially tells conspiracy theorists like, hey, not it's not that everything that you're saying is stupid, but you have to consider the fact that these extreme examples are very unlikely to be true, even though there's a kernel of truth sprinkled in there. Yeah, I call that cow hop, you know, capitalized on what happened on purpose yeah. as a play on the, you know, let it happen on purpose, lie hop, and made it happen on purpose, my hop for the two 9-11 ones. By the way, Roosevelt, uh, after Pearl Harbor, was accused of that. He must have known. What about these uh, memos that he got? And it seemed like it was obvious the Japanese were going to attack Hawaii and, you know, they didn't do anything about it. So therefore, they let it happen on purpose or made it happen on purpose. No, I mean, Roosevelt was looking for an excuse to get into the war to support the British who were desperate for our help. And, you know, because of treaties and laws and things like this, there's only so much he could do. You know, the Lend-Lease program, give him 50 destroyers, do this, do that. Kind of like what we're doing with Ukraine now. We can't send troops in there, uh, but we can give money. We can do this. We can do that based on treaties and laws and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, if we had the opportunity to really get in there and, and defend Ukraine, we would. And so you're kind of waiting for uh, that moment to capitalize. So yeah, George Bush, obviously in hindsight, you know, he wanted to finish what his father didn't finish in uh, Iraq. And so he did, you know, I mean, it, it never made sense to invade Iraq. And, you know, he admitted later it was a big mistake. You know, the 
the so-called evidence of weapons of mass destruction, the yellow cake and all that stuff. And, you know, Colin Powell was sent into the UN to make the case, probably the most embarrassing thing he's ever done in his career. And I suspect he knew it was a bunch of bullshit. And, but, you know, it's a team sport, right? Well, the boss says I got to go in there and do it. And I'm a good team player, so I'll do it, right? Probably, that's my guess, you know, and, and since he died last year, he had that kind of stain on his reputation uh, mm. that it's just unfortunate. That's the way it goes. But yeah, so politicians capitalize on what happened on purpose. They do. They do that all the time. And, uh, you know, but, you know, because so much is random about particularly wars and international relationships, that much of what happens is is just totally random. And and therefore you wait for that moment and then you jump on it. That's, a, is that a conspiracy? Hmm. Well, you know, maybe, although, you know, in the modern era, you have to get permission, right? You got to get the votes. So, you know, Bush had his uh, coalition of the willing, you know, which was like six other tiny uh, nations we barely even ever heard of <laughs> you know that were behind it except for england and um you know so or you got to get a un resolution get a vote in the case of uh putin you know last week you know i'm gonna we're gonna have a referendum in the donbass region of ukraine you know as yeah. why is he even bother with that everybody knows it's bullshit well because today you can't just come in and go i came i saw i conquered end of story this is how it works Right. You know, ever since the Second World War in particular, you have to have reasons for it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like I came, I saw and I was just standing there minding my own business and he attacked me. So I had to invade. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of a pretense to war. So much of what we think of as conspiracy, you know, about these conspiracy theories, about these real conspiracies, they're more like along the lines of what I just said. It's kind of. It's sort of how international relations go these days. It's a kind of conspiracy, a little bit different than what we usually read about conspiracy theories involving politics. Yeah. And I love that when you talk about war, you essentially say, look, well, let me actually go back. So the conspiracy theory is that there's these the, like notorious or nefarious bankers, and they're essentially trying to sort of drive up war. So they want war. They want us all to kill each other. They want depopulation, et cetera. So essentially in your book, you say that, no, actually, if you think about the way wars have been working, it, we've been kind of decreasing wars, right? So there are these other avenues to resolving conflicts, like economic sanctions. So can you talk a little bit about those, essentially how wars have actually, in some sense, have been in the scale of them? Have they been kind of going down as opposed to going up mm, and if yeah. let's say that yeah. yeah and if and if the conspiracy theory of uh, well they're just trying to depopulate us is true you would actually see the alternative trend you would see world war three four five six whatever yeah right exactly the counterfactual you know if if this was true what else would have to be true well the following right. things should happen and they didn't so your theory is probably not true yeah that's one way to think about it well i have that section in there because i talked about world war one which was launched mm -hmm. by a conspiracy to assassinate um franz ferdinand and you know, to kind of free Serbia from the pending control by the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian Empire, of which Franz Ferdinand was about to come into power when his father was going to die. He's very old. So, you know, there was a, a plot to assassinate him by these Serbian nationalists, the Black Hand, the group was called. And But this is kind of typically how it goes, right? There was like seven of them and you know, somebody didn't show up to pick up his weapon at the appointed place. And, you know, somebody else forgot the password and somebody went to the wrong spot where he was supposed to stand and somebody else's hand grenade didn't go off when he was supposed to throw it. And mm -hmm. somebody's gun jammed. I mean, that's <laughs> typical of how it goes. And, you know, Franz Ferdinand's driving along in the in the motorcade there 
and they threw the hand grenade and this one did go off but it bounced off the back uh, trunk of his car and rolled under the car behind him before it went off and so his comrades were hurt and so he dashes off to give his speech and then he's upset about this you know, being treated this way and then they decide well let's go to the hospital to ch see how our comrades are doing and they they take the parade route back and then turn made a wrong turn the driver makes a wrong turn these were old cars. It was 1914. Didn't, this particular car he had didn't have a reverse. So the driver's like, oops. So he kind of puts it in neutral and backs down this wrong turn. And, and, and he just happens to be at the corner where one of the guys, is Gabriel Princip, was standing there. Yeah, and he's just like, oh, my God, there he is. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Shot him dead. You know, completely unplanned, totally mm -hmm. random accident. Just, a, you know, just total contingency there that, you know, never was supposed to work out that way. And that led to, um, you know, Austria, uh, Austria-Hungary, Hungary having to respond with their troops to against Serbian Serbia, and and then that led the Russians to have to back, you know, and militarize, and then the Germans had to militarize, and the French had to militarize, and the British had to militarize, by which I mean call up the troops and get it ready, and for invasion and war and so on, and, and before you know it, you know, the guns of August. And uh, we're off and running. And, you know, and four years later, you know, eight and a half million people are dead. That's, you know, that's kind of typically how it goes. Right. You know, so, but I got off on a sidetrack there because you asked yeah, me. Okay. War, war. Yeah, that's okay. This is the kind oh, of yeah, so, the prelude yeah, to it. Yeah. Right. So to prevent that uh, from happening again, you know, there was this kind of push toward outlawing, out, outlawing war right. uh, and making it illegal unless you know, there's really good reasons like, you know, that again, that, you know, this was our territory and they came in and took it and, and therefore we were going to invade them to get our land back, something like that defensive, you know, kind of a defensive war is acceptable, but, you know, so that, that's what led to all these um, responses. Okay. So when somebody does violate one of these rules about war, what do we do? Uh, well, to prevent world war one from happening again, let's have economic sanctions. That is, the kind of outlaw outlawry of war it's it's out it's illegal so uh but we don't want to you know have respond to something they did with sending our troops in so let's just not trade with them anymore we'll just take them out of the community of nations the family of nations and and we won't play with them anymore so you know we're, we're still doing this we're doing just today uh what is this october 5th you know uh uh biden uh, ramped up some more economic sanctions against mm -hmm. russia because of the a referendum referendums he heard and North Korea, you know, launched that rocket that went over Japan yesterday, you know, we're wrapping up more economic sanctions. They don't always work, but they work enough to, to kind of keep people in check from, from escalating things too much, you know, because we have such a complex international um, uh, network of trade um, that if you're truly isolated, uh, it's going to be difficult to maintain any kind of quality of life for your citizens. So, you know, it's 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 hard to do that, but it's better than going to war. Anyway, that's mm -hmm. that's kind of how I ended up talking about that. Right. I love it. So it's like we want less war rather than more. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's I mean, you know, I don't know what what Putin's going to do if he uses tactical nukes. How do we respond to that? I'm ho hoping he, he won't. But you never know. He's pretty mm -hmm. unpredictable. And um, do we respond with tactical nukes? You know, we won't we won't go over that. We won't top it. But maybe we'll try to match it. And 
you know, we've already done the draw the line in the sand and scold him for being a, a naughty boy for, uh, you know, for the like Crimea, um, you know, in what was that 2014 and Obama said, you know, that was really, really, really bad. We are really, really <laughs> mad at you. <laughs> and don't do that again. Right. Mm. So he waited <clears throat> until this year to do something more. Uh, you know, I don't know what this is kind of out of my league. What, what's the right thing to do? I don't know. But sending troops in and, you know, more American soldiers dying is probably not the solution at this point. We just finished two wars, you know, 20 years of, of armed conflict. It's just obviously that it's not a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm with you. I hope not. it doesn't go to that. Um, hopefully there won't be a use of tactical nukes. Yeah, well, yeah, Alan has family in the Ukraine now, so. You do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother who I grew up uh, with here in New York. He actually lives there, and uh, I yeah. Why why does he live there? Yeah, I know. Uh, by the no, way, by, no, by, no, by no, the way, no, so no, to, just... to to his credit, he actually Ukrainian refugees lived with him for months here. Wow. Yeah, he he took them out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. you. I didn't think to mention that, but well, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, thank you for yeah. No, it's a great thing. You're yeah. a mensch. I said this before. It's sure. it's really wild. Yeah, for, for no cost. Like they just lived with them. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what 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 is he? He's he's back there now. Yeah, he's he's there now. Yeah, he he was here most of his life. Uh, just decided to move there. Essentially, we have we have family over there. Um, uh, family of my uh, father and uh, stepmother, and um, yeah, he got used to living there. Started to like it there more, living like close to that uh, Odessa, Ukraine sort of region. Mm. Uh, he kind of is in a village though, so he's not exactly in. Um, he's like in the in the western part of Ukraine, so he hasn't seen like things happening around him but i do have family in uh, odessa who've had like uh mm -hmm. rockets like land not too far from where they mm -hmm. live and mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know knock on wood hopefully no tactical nukes if it gets to that then whoa but uh yeah yeah i you guess because i have a personal stake in it so. in this category of uh even the experts not really understanding why things are happening how come no one saw that the Russians would not just easily walk over Ukraine and in three weeks they'd you know be running the country. That that didn't happen. And everybody acts like it's a complete surprise that Ukraine was able to has been able to do what it's done. How, 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 why is that? Why did we not know this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh it, yeah, original. I mean, if you asked me too, I would think, hey, Russia Russia's like a superpower, right? I mean, right. of course, the assumption is they're gonna take over Ukraine in no time. And you Ukraine's just been uh, mounting this incredible defense. Uh, they had a draft over there, right? Anyone between mm -hmm. 18 and 60, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just mobilized people that apparently they're, the morale just shot up. Uh, they have people like I remember in the beginning, they're like, Oh, yeah, we have the Klitschko brothers here, yes, and, right? Uh, the and, that. And, and the yeah, world exactly. is standing with Ukraine, and yeah, and all of a sudden, people are like getting behind uh Zelensky, too. And there's this like huge uh amount of respect that just went up for him. And I don't know, it, it, I, I'd hate to just chalk it up to morale. I know it's way more complicated than that, like, incredibly way more complicated than that, but. Um, it's, it's great to see how they're managing and how, you know, Russia has been defeated in like, uh, Liman recently. Uh, and I mean, uh, we'll see. I mean, a lot of the news over there in Ukraine, they, they think that, you know, it's, it's maybe within a month's time, maybe less the war will be over, but 
that's just you never know right i mean yeah they, of course they were to... saying that back in february march that's right here we are october although i could i could see putin saying you know what uh i got what i wanted although now it looks like he's being pushed out of the Donbass region. But I thought he might just pull out and go, you know, this is all we ever wanted in the first place. These are our people. So I'm um, taking our troops back home and declaring victory. We won. Mm-hmm. And, then, yeah. and then the rest of the world going, oh, whew, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, and as we start wrapping up, the last thing I want to really focus on is, uh, so I'm a huge Tupac fan. We've had uh, one of the outlaws mm. on Napoleon, who's uh, one of the group mates of Tupac's. So I love the part that you had on celebrities. And essentially, this was, by the way, as you know, my conspiratorial mindset was, this was something that fascinated me for years, because the Tupac's assassination, murder, whatever you want to call it, it's had so many freaking theories about it so we've had like just books movies it's pretty much almost as big as jfk if not as mm-hmm. big the tupac and biggie murders so uh you know when you actually talk to some of the outlaws these uh tupac's group mates they would tell you they're like it's actually open and shut everybody actually has always known who's killed tupac and it's actually the official story and there's a person who came out and he said oh i was the one who like orchestrated that it wasn't really a hit it was whatever long story short he got into a fight with somebody in vegas then the guy was a gang member the gang member went to one of his set leaders the set leaders like oh you have to kill him now and the gang members like okay and that's it that's the official story and that's what it's always been the guys come out and he said yeah because i have immunity i'm actually going to tell you that it was me i was the one who orchestrated it he told the entire story so does he have immunity Oh, so um, he was, oh man, so I'm going to, I don't want to butcher this. So from my vague memory of it, so he was the informant on some other major case and they essentially told him that if he mm. would, yeah, if he would inform on this case, right. that he could, he, that we would not try you for the Tupac case. And he said, okay, cool. And then, so, but there's some from my, oh man, I wish I knew more about this right now because I forgot. Uh, but there's still, um, so it's a little bit vague. So there's some speculation that he might still be tried for it, but so far there hasn't been anything. Mm. And he he revealed this in about 2016 or 2017. Mm. So nothing's happened to him since. And by the way, he's near death. He has like late stage cancer at this point. So mm. essentially everybody kind of knows who killed Tupac and everybody knows why. But the thing is, the story is horrible because what it is, is that he gets into a fight with somebody in Vegas over nothing, completely random, has nothing to do with him because he was sticking up for his buddy. The guy gets embarrassed and obviously it's on camera. His friends were there. He's humiliated. He goes back to his boss and the boss is like, oh, you you're going to let him do that to you? you in front of everybody and the guy's like all right okay i'm gonna kill him right this like pretty much nobody this absolute nobody killed the great tupac and so for all of us we were just like no there's no way there's no possible way that this absolute nobody could have killed one of the greatest human beings you know in some way who's ever (laughs) lived you know amongst the marilyn monroe's and the john f kennedy's of the world yeah so let's talk about that so why is it so hard for me especially at this point right why was it so hard for for us to accept that somebody like a tupac could just be murdered by you know again and something seemingly so random well there is a mismatch a cause and effect mismatch you know we want the size of the cause of the death of the person to match the size of the person right right so um you know jfk leader of the free world most powerful person in the world was killed by who Lee Harvey Oswald, he was just this, you know, fucking loser, just a nobody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, cause of death of Princess Di, you know, drunk driving, speeding, no seatbelt. Right. That, you know, tens of thousands of people die of that every year in America. But princesses are not supposed to die like that, right? They had, so, they had, so you add elements, you know, with Kennedy. It wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. Maybe he was a patsy. Maybe he was involved. Maybe he wasn't. But it has to be other people to match the size of Kennedy, 
right? So the FBI and the CIA and the KGB and the Cubans and the Russians and the mafia and, you know, whoever else, uh, you know, and you just add it all up. And it's like, now that seems like a more cognitive balance uh, for that. Same thing with Princess Di, you know, it was the MI6 or it was the royal family or whoever was involved in it. And so, and I, and I think there's something also of kind of a, a the belief in a resurrection mythology. I've been kind of exploring this a little bit, like, um, they're not really dead. Yes. Right? They, they, they're somewhere else, you know, because there was a study I cite in the book of called uh, Dead and Alive. And, you know, people that tick the box for for the belief that Princess Diana was murdered are also more likely to tick the box for the theory that she faked her death and she's still alive somewhere. Her and whoever, you know, or her and Elvis, or whoever, you know, still living in South America with Hitler and and whoever else, or, you know, big people, you know, maybe they just don't die at all. You know, there's kind of a resurrection, you know, like a Jesus story, you know, he, yes, he died, but he was brought back. You know, there's something like they're still alive somewhere. Um, you know, the, also the you know difficulty of accepting the death of people we know. Uh, you know, people are always shocked in a state of denial for a while, and celebrities yeah. or famous people feel like the, the somebody we know i mean they, they're almost like faux family like oh my god you know kobe died oh my god this was you know a massive story for days right. and it's like well how many of us knew kobe you know nobody right mm -hmm. <laughs> a handful of people watching uh, but but it seems like we knew him and you can, you can apply that to anybody and uh, there's still maryland theories conspiracy theories about maryland and elvis you know there's this new film about biopic about him and uh and his complicated relationship with his manager and all that you know there's conspiracy theories about all that you know he's either he's murdered or he's faked his death same thing with maryland's a new documentary series on netflix about maryland i think it's netflix uh where there's you know some evidence that um there was some foul play or that people knew she was uh, dead or you know let let it happen on purpose or made it mm -hmm. happen on purpose you know it's one of those things mm -hmm. um and so on but you know people that take a lot of medication and drugs they're they're upping the odds of dying accidentally so it's much you know bayesian reason much more likely that she died from what we think she died of is drug overdose just mm -hmm. you know, mix the wrong drugs this happens all the time um and just but but again princesses famous people powerful people they're not supposed to die that way so i didn't know that much about the tupac conspiracy mm -hmm. theories i remember hearing about it when it first came out but i didn't really look much into it it's interesting that it was just that what you said it was that's the kind of a lee harvey oswald just some nut just yeah. because that's kind of a, a police blotter type homicide you know we most we know most homicides are are more moralistic in nature. They're not mm. instrumental. You know, I killed him because I wanted his Rolex or his BMW. It's more like he scratched my car or he slept with my girlfriend or he embarrassed me in front of my friend. So I had to do it, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, um, Roy Baumeister has this great book called Evil where he interviewed serial killers. And to a man, and they're all men, uh, you know, they all said, well, the, the, the person d d deserved it. I mean, I, you know, I, he had it coming. I just did what was the right thing to do, wow. whatever it was. And it, there are always stupid reasons, like your the example you gave, you know, well, he insulted me or I was embarrassed in front of my friends. It's on tape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're not going to let that stand. Or, no, I'm not. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's so that that is kind of typical. But you don't you don't want someone like Tupac to be part of that. But no. in fact, from a Bayesian reasoning, that's far more likely than that there was some deep plot.
Right. And then what's so interesting about that is in the gang community at the time, they were kind of like trophy hunters were killing somebody like Tupac was it was a badge of honor. So for mm. some, so the guy's name was Orlando Anderson. So for somebody like him, who's essentially just the guy in the community, for him to have done something like that, and then to go back to his neighborhood, he was the king. Mm. And by the way, Mike, if you had to guess, what do you think the most popular documentary on Tupac is called? Oh, I don't know. Tupac Resurrection. Ah. no way yes really? yes yeah it was an oh mtv God. films movie in 2002 yeah <laughs> yep 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 and the reason why it was called that is essentially because he narrates the entire documentary like they piece together interviews and clips or whatnot wow. but yeah that was that was the main theory for a long time that there was going to be seven years between his passing and between the time where he's resurrected and he comes back from wherever he flee to yeah or fled oh to my God, <laughs> that's great i wish i had that in my book that's a great story that fits yeah. perfectly with the themes yeah absolutely that's it Right. Yeah. Yeah. And resurrection, it seems like for a lot of these people is a big thing, because I think for celebrities, a lot of us want to believe that this is just my I mean, it's not just my hypothesis, but I'm assuming this is the underlying idea. We want to believe that these people we love so much who are in some sense greater than us, if they can survive, you know, the sort of mundane, then maybe somehow we'd be able to, too. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that might tap into deeper uh, beliefs about the afterlife and, you know, people don't really die. I'm not going to really die, am I? I mean, I can't imagine not existing because by definition to imagine not existing you, you, you have to be conscious and sentient to imagine anything right mm -hmm. so you, you literally cannot picture yourself dead yeah. you know because to picture yourself you're alive right so yeah. you know i i think that my previous book heavens on earth i talked about that you know just really it's not possible to imagine there just being nothing which is mm. really what it was. I mean, what it would be is like, where were you before you were born? I didn't exist. There was no existence of me. Right. And that's what it'll be like when you're dead. <laughs> you just stop existing. And, but that just seems like, what? Wait, I can't picture that. You know? Yeah, I know. That's the problem. <laughs> like imagine <laughs> nothing. There's no universe, no space or time, no matter, no concepts, no logic, no platonic ideals, no God. No, no space or time because that's there is no space or time. And at some point, you just go, I don't even know what this means. I mean, what we're just using words. I mm -hmm. mean, it's impossible to imagine there being absolutely nothing. And anyway, so that's I think it's the same problem there. Right, right. And it's like, and it's also impossible, I think, to imagine that our Christ like mortals on earth that they can ever pass because if they pass again, what does that say about us? Right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Alan, before we wrap up, final questions for Michael? Uh, yes. So if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Amazon's always a reliable place. You go to a local bookstore. The book, the book should be in all bookstores everywhere. If people are still going to bookstores, I hope so. I like, I like bookstores. Mm -hmm. uh, but Amazon, of course, you can go to skeptic.com for the magazine. You know, here's our latest issue on abortion matters we did a redesign the magazine you can find that there mm. and my book will be on sale there at skeptic.com after october 25th and uh, yeah or michaelshermer.com too i love it all right awesome. so michael two things before we wrap up first of all i love your podcast as you obviously know oh, but you. i wanted to say it on Same air here. and then also your book is one of my favorite books of 2022 Oh, wow. Wow. Gosh. Wow. Okay. Here it is October. So that's a, that's cool. I know. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I appreciate I, that. I wish the me of 10 years ago could have read it. <laughs> All right, funny. Michael. Okay. Michael, thank, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having thank me. You. Have a good night. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye, Bye. guys. All right. First of all, that was awesome. And
everyone. If you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We're on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit the, hit the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And thanks again so much for watching. Watching That was a blast. Yeah, See so you fun. next time. Thank <laughs> you.